Good morning, Doxa. My name is Ronnie. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And then I, I get to direct our college ministry, the Salt Company, which is coming to a close as, as the students will be gone after next week. We had a blast. Thanks for praying for our students and for so many of you that have been involved in their lives uh, this year. It's been a really exciting start and, and excited to see what God does next year. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24 today, if you guys want to pull your Bibles out. Um, First off, though, how's everybody doing? How's our just attitudes and emotions after what happened to us yesterday with the snow? Wasn't that just crazy? Everybody doing all right? Did anybody else just in defiance today decide to not wear a coat even though it's, it was still 30 degrees or whatever? Just because, like, it's just not okay. We're not going to go from spring and then, like, summer to all of a sudden snow and then sunny again today. Whatever. I hope that this passage of the Bible actually is going to put us in, in a better mood than my wife and I were in yesterday. So... Luke chapter 24. Um, if you were with us last week on Easter, Rob, he preached the beginning of this chapter where we see the overwhelming historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not just the historical evidence, but he, he pointed out that this is a, a personal hope that we have. Yes, supported by history, but we really looked at just how the lives of the first Christians were dramatically changed because they claimed they saw Jesus alive. He pointed out last week that the, the first uh, Christians, the early apostles and disciples, they went from cowards to preachers to then martyrs. People who, before Jesus was crucified, ran away from him, but then after they saw him risen from the dead, were willing to die from him. Uh, Peter, one of the people that were there, the one of the people that were in our text last week, he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying we didn't make this up. This wasn't a cleverly devised myth. We saw Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of the risen king of the world. And where that brings us today, actually in light of uh, baptisms that we got to celebrate last week, is 2,000 years later, I don't know the last time that you guys saw Jesus physically risen from the dead, you know, in your house, in your backyard, in your mirror, like wherever, I have never seen Jesus risen from the dead physically like these eyewitnesses did. And Peter, with so much confidence, says, it wasn't a cleverly devised myth, I was there. I didn't make this up, I wasn't looking for this. And his confidence was in that, but what about us? What about us who live thousands of years later and don't, don't get to see the risen Jesus like they did? Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says this, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Apostle Paul, who was another man that saw Jesus physically risen from the dead, said that for us Christians, there is a direct correlation between the resurrection of Jesus and then us living a resurrected and powerful life. But our question, the question that I asked, the question I wonder if you have ever asked before, is how can we walk in resurrection power as people that live thousands of years after the resurrection. We don't get to see Jesus physically. This story in Luke chapter 24, one of the last ones he includes in his gospel, is actually going to help us with that very question. How can we too walk in the same resurrection power as people that didn't get to see him physically like the eyewitnesses? So we're going to pick it up in verse 13. We're going to read through verse 35. And what we have here is a story of some of the early followers of Jesus and an encounter that we have with them. The first kind of scene that we'll see is, is we're going to see them face a hard reality about life. That's going to be verses 13 through 26. 
Next, they're going to experience a surprising reality about Jesus, verses 27 through 32. And then at the end, we'll see them walk out of this scene in resurrection power. So first, they're going to face a hard reality about life. Let's pick it up in verse 13 of Luke 24. So that very day, this is Resurrection Sunday, a couple hours after the Easter story we read last week, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. So pause, they had been in Jerusalem. These were some of Jesus's followers and they are likely heading, they are heading back to Emmaus, which is likely their hometown, seven miles away. They are packing their bags and heading home. They saw Jesus crucified. We'll see in a minute that they had heard these rumors of that he had risen from the dead, but they don't believe it. And they have lost all hope and are heading back home. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So it's clear here in verse 16 that this is Jesus who has now appeared and he's walking with them, but he is keeping his uh, appearance hidden from them. Jesus is up to something, okay? So trace it out with me. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? And he said to them, what things? So Jesus just messing with them here. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Okay, let's pause there. What these early disciples have just faced is a very hard reality about life, and that reality is this. Life is sad because all of our hopes and dreams eventually die. That's what we see happening here. They're traveling back home from Emmaus. They've packed their bags and they're heading back home. They have broken hearts. It says in verse 17, Jesus asked them this question about what happened. It says they stopped dead in their tracks. They stood still looking sad. They had just lost their friend and their leader, Jesus. Not only they're feeling the pain and the sadness of losing him, but their hopes are crushed. Look at verse 21. It says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had this hope for who Jesus would be and what he had promised to do, and everything came crashing down at the crucifixion. Everything they were hoping that would happen in their lives and in the life of their nation seemed lost when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So they're experiencing this reality, this hard reality of life, that all of our hopes and dreams do end up failing or dying. Have you, have you faced this reality yet in your life? We've all had the times where, just like them in verse 17, we, we stop still and we look sad because we've just seen what is ultimately really true about this life, that, that all good things come to an end. Maybe on a small scale, this has happened to you, maybe on a very big and, and painful scale, but we've all had relationships with people that we've loved that, that ended 
loved ones that have, have passed away, accomplishments that we've had that didn't quite deliver what we thought they would, maybe your job or your career. Maybe you finally got your hands on some stuff that you'd been saving money for and it didn't quite satisfy for you. Maybe you're, you're young and you're kind of looking down the pipe at what your life is going to be like. And what these disciples just saw, what stopped them in their tracks, is a pattern that's been repeated throughout human history, that the things that we put our hopes in, they eventually fail us in this life or we just eventually die. So when they, set, they stop and they look sad, they're actually looking in the face of one of the most true things about this life is that it's ultimately sad because everything just kind of ends. And I want you to look back at verse 20 and verse 21. This is the, the shape that life takes. Verse 20, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Their hopes were crucified lost. Everything they had wrapped up in Jesus went down the drain. But as you notice, Jesus is being sneaky here. For some reason, Jesus shows up in verse 15 and he starts to pursue them. Okay. So in verse 15, it says, Jesus drew near to them in the mess of their hopelessness. I had a, a strength coach on my football team in college named Coach Hillman. It was actually the same guy that coached uh, Rob in college. We went to the same university, Bowling Green State University. And he would just drop these crazy workouts. And so much of your ability to get through like a, a strength training workout is based on hope. Hope that, that you can do it. Hope that it will someday be over. And hope that the person to, who devised the workout like has a plan and this isn't going to actually kill you. And the best strength coaches will, will push you to your limit. They'll devise a workout plan for you that is going to make you feel like you're going to die, but then somehow you're going to pull through. And one of the things that I always appreciated about Coach Hillman, and he was, he was literally insane, this guy, but he, he was insane in the way that just made you love him because we trusted him. And over and over again, one of the kind of the patterns that he set in front of us is he would write up the, the workout on the whiteboard and you would look at it and you would just say, this makes no sense. There's, there's no way I should be doing that with my body after I just did that with my body yesterday. Like, we, we are going to die. And he would look at us, and he would see that look in our eyes, and he would say, know this, men. And he had kind of like a raspy voice, kind of like a weasel. He's like, know, know this, men. This workout is perfectly prescribed to do exactly what your body needs to do. You can trust me. And then we would go in to the workout. And the point I'm making for you right now is that Coach Hillman, amidst the mess and what looked pretty hopeless to us, he, he always had a plan and he saw something that we didn't see. And that's exactly what we see here with Jesus. In their hopelessness, they just faced this terrible reality about life. Yet again, one of their hopes had fallen. Their leader had died. Their hope was hopeless. Jesus comes in and he draws near, but interestingly, verse 16, he keeps them from recognizing him. Very strange. We're going to see why here in a second. He wants to teach them something. And then he starts to ask questions. So we see in verse 17, he says, well, why, what things are going on? What's, what's wrong? What, what happened? And obviously questions that he knows the answer to because he was there, but he wants them to explain it. So look back at verse 19. What things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, 
Some of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were there with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Notice two dramatic ironies here about this statement. One, they, they basically perfectly explain the facts of the gospel, right? They talk about Jesus, he's mighty and, and uh, as a prophet, mighty in word and deed. They said he was crucified. And they're like, yeah, and then we heard that like, he was raised from the dead, but that's totally crazy. So they, they are so hopeless right now as they're rehearsing the very hope of the gospel. That's weird. Second, Jesus is literally standing right next to them. Even that last little line, it says, but him they did not see. Just imagine being there as Jesus is, is standing there and he's, he's concealing his physical identity from them to, to teach them a point. Just the irony of how close they were to him. But why don't they see him? Why don't they see him in the, in the gospel message that they just shared? Like, why don't they see the hope there? Because they got it right. They got the facts right. And why don't they see him physically? Well, Jesus, he, he swoops in here and he speaks very tenderly, very gently to them. Do you see it in verse 25? We haven't read this verse yet. So amidst their hopelessness, their hearts are broken and sad. This is what he says. You dummies. That's my translation of verse 25. Look at this. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus, so good, so wise, to their broken and hopeless heart, he says, you fools. You're so slow. How did you not get it? He says, you missed the point of the Bible. He says, your, your hopelessness right now that you're feeling, the sadness that you're feeling, that you're facing, is based on the wrong facts. That might have been true about life before the resurrection, but that is no longer true. Listen, sadness and hopelessness that we feel in this life is, is real because we live in a fallen and broken world. But what the resurrection of Jesus has done is it's opened up a new story so that the type of hopelessness and sadness that they're feeling isn't sane. It's, it's now foolish because of what Jesus has done. And that's what he's pointing out to them. And now he's going to point out, here's, here's the true shape of your hope. Here's, here's how you should be hoping. Here's why you should uh, explain that gospel and find a lot of hope. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? This is what they missed. They had missed the true shape of hope. They had missed this pattern in the Bible, this pattern in the message of the prophets, that the hero that would save them, it was necessary for him to suffer and then enter his glory. You see, people at that time, they were, they were looking for a, a political hero. The Jewish word was Messiah, the, the chosen one who would rescue them. He says, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. And so when Jesus dies... They think all hope is lost. And what Jesus is pointing out is like, didn't you listen to the message of the Bible that you should have known so well? It was necessary. The type of hero you need, needed to suffer and die and then raised and be glorified. And this just presses on us, right? And, and how we too have, have looked for the wrong types of heroes. We have felt the sadness and the hopelessness that these people have felt and we reach for, for a job or a relationship, a thrill, more money, all these things that, that constantly do end up coming empty for us. Or we've reached to Jesus 
as a means to getting one of those other things. And Jesus says, don't be foolish. There's no hope there. The hope that you need perfectly fits the shape of the problem that you have. A suffering and glorified hero. Let me explain to you more of what that means. It's gonna come up on the screen. Colossians chapter two, verses 12 through 15, explains what was really happening at the cross and the resurrection. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We have been raised from the dead with him. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Pause there for a second. Our greatest need, the hope that would actually save us is that somehow sin would be paid for. And it says our sin was nailed to the cross. Our bigger need, our our need more than just a better relationship or more money or a more comfortable life is a brand new life. We need something or someone that can defeat death and give us eternal life. This is the pattern that Jesus walked in his suffering and then in his resurrection and his glory. And that's what Paul now looking back on the event is saying happened. We were raised to life with Christ. And then look at verse 15 explaining the true perspective of the ultimate victory that was happening at the cross and in the resurrection. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So while these early disciples, they they felt that all had been lost because their their hero had died, Jesus was actually accomplishing the greatest victory of all time and the victory that we need, a victory that goes beyond this life. So life is ultimately sad and hopeless unless Jesus rose from the grave. So Jesus has just brought home for them something that they had totally missed, something that they weren't seeing. And this would be the perfect time for him to now reveal himself and say, here I am. You missed me. I'm right here. But notice he didn't say, I'm right here. He pointed them to the Bible. As they were explaining the accounts of his life and death and then apparent resurrection, he didn't say, guys, look at me. Here I am. He said, why didn't you believe everything that the Bible had been telling you? And this leads us to what he does next, which is, Absolutely stunning to me. They experience a surprising reality about Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So rather than taking the veil off of their eyes and saying, you've got the gospel now, here I am, he wants to show it to them from the Bible. He keeps his identity concealed. And so two things that are going on here that we can't miss. Number one, Jesus just said that the Bible is ultimately about me. This whole book that I'm holding in my hands that you guys have in your lap is ultimately a story concerning Jesus. And he's gonna start to interpret all things in the Bible concerning himself. So that's number one. Maybe you already knew that. Maybe you didn't know that. That truth will change your life. That this whole book ultimately is pointing to the salvation given to us in Jesus. The second crazy truth is that Jesus is now saying, you don't have to see me physically in order to see me. You don't have to see Jesus to see Jesus. 
You don't have to be one of the eyewitnesses who saw his resurrection to experience him in fullness. You can see him spiritually through the Bible. And this is exactly what he was telling his disciples in John chapter 13 through 17, one of his, his last discussions he ever had with them. He says, guys, I'm going away. I'm going to die, but it's actually better because I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit who's gonna bring to mind everything that I had taught you and he's gonna use you to write down the Bible so that generations after this will be able to have as intimate of a relationship with God as you do now. This is an amazing truth for us. This is why we don't need to see the physical resurrected Jesus to have an amazing, vibrant relationship with him and a faith. And what's amazing in verse 27 is that Jesus now takes them through probably the greatest Bible study that's ever been led, right? You have Jesus walking down the road with them, interpreting in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And unfortunately, it just gives us verse 27, and so we don't see like exactly what he did. We can only imagine, but it says he started with Moses and then all the prophets. There's a, a pastor named John Calvin, a French pastor, uh, 1500s, who is not even a close second, but like as close of a second as I could find of like explaining what it might have been for Jesus to explain these things. So let me just read off to you what it means that Jesus is the point of the whole Bible. So beginning with Moses, this is what John Calvin says. He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who offered himself, his son as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He, being Jesus, is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and subject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek, who was offered an eternal sacrifice once and for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. He is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to the promised land. So what Calvin doing there, if, if some of those names sound familiar to you, it's okay if they even don't. Those are characters in the Bible, characters in the first five chapters of the Bible written by Moses that he is saying, those stories were real, those stories were historical, those are lessons we can learn from those stories, but ultimately they're pointing to a bigger story about Jesus. And as Jesus takes them through this study, he's saying, I just fulfilled all of that. My victory that I just won on the cross and in my resurrection is a fulfillment of all of those stories that you knew. Next, the prophets. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. And then Calvin sums it up and just says this, this is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one was to sift thoroughly through the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw us and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that he would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And the key pattern that they had missed in the Bible about Jesus was this pattern of suffering to glory. A crucified and risen hero is exactly what humanity needed to defeat their real problem and give them what they really needed, their real hope. And Jesus, 
wanted their faith in that message to not rest on his miraculous resurrected appearance, but he wanted to ground that in the scriptures. He wanted their faith and their confidence to be based not on seeing him alive, but on seeing him in the Bible. There's no truth about the Bible that has more drastically changed my relationship to this book than that. That the Bible is about Jesus and that I, as a man who has never seen the resurrected Jesus physically, can know him just like those first eyewitnesses did. So picking it back up in verse 28, we see that Jesus accomplishes his mission. Look at this. So, so they're walking now. They drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But look, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. Their hope is starting to warm up. They once were hopeless and sad, and now that this man, they still don't know it's Jesus, has started to tell them about Jesus from the Bible. They want him to stay. They want to sit down and have a meal with him. And it's over this meal that Jesus now decides, okay, mission accomplished. I'm going to reveal myself. Look what he does in verse 29 or verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. So Jesus has now just completed his plan. Okay, so they sit down and break the bread. Some, some people would interpret this and say, maybe it's pointing towards communion because when we break the bread together in church on Sunday, it is a way that Jesus said, you will be able to experience me. You'll be able to remember me. And I think that is true. I'm not positive that that's what's happening here because there's no wine present in this scene. It's not described by Luke. And also these, these disciples wouldn't have been there at the Last Supper a couple days ago in the account here. So it's, it's not uh, likely, in my opinion, that that's what's happening. But what's probably happening is Jesus has just now become a part of a meal with them, which is the most intimate of things that you can do with people, especially back in that time. And it's in this intimate setting where they're sitting across the table after a long journey that he wants to now reveal himself. He's gonna break the bread. Potentially they see the scars on his hands and in this most intimate of setting, it says, then their eyes were opened. It doesn't say that something magical happened where like the, the bread forced their eyes to be open. It's clear that Jesus himself said, okay, now, you've already seen me spiritually in the Bible. I'm gonna let you see me physically. And then he vanishes, right? One of the weirdest parts of the story is that he just decides to vanish. But what that is pointing to is that this whole episode was all about them experiencing him through the scriptures and not through his resurrected appearance. They experienced the nearness of Jesus through opening the Bible, which is such good news for us because you don't need to see Jesus physically to experience him and see him spiritually. And the telltale sign that this has happened for you is that your heart burns. You see that in verse 32. Let's read it again. So they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Seeing the real Jesus feels like your heart caught on fire. Their hearts didn't burn because they saw him after the bread. Their hearts were burning as he opened to them the scriptures. Something was happening. Something was changing. Something was clicking. When we were doing student leadership interviews for, for Salt Company this year, over and over again, 
we would sit down with students and hear how something happened for them in their faith this year related to the Bible. They started to open it. They started to read it. They started to see Jesus. And, and as I would sit across the table from them, I, I couldn't, I just did this instinctively. I didn't plan it. But as they would share with me, I would go, oh, oh no, you're done, you're done for. It's, it's over. And they'd be like, what are you, what are you talking about? I was like, he's, he's coming after you. You've, you felt the burning heart. Jesus has, has opened your eyes to see him in the scriptures and say goodbye to, to whatever you're doing with your life before this moment, because it, it's over. You're on the great adventure now with the rest of the Christian church throughout history of seeing Jesus Christ in the scriptures, seeing the true hope that we really need. C.S. Lewis uh, is an author that he talks about this idea better than anybody I've been able, able to find. Just this idea of the, the resonance we experience when we understand the gospel, seeing it coming off the pages of scripture. He talks about it as the door that you've been knocking on all your life, finally opening at last. The truth resonates. It fits. You realize your sin. You realize your hopes and your longings. You see what the cross did to your sin, nailing it to the cross. You see your guilt melt away. You hear the promises of new life now and forever. And it totally fits, not only fits, but surpasses everything you've ever dreamed of. Your heart burns because it's seen what it was made for and what it has always needed. Suffering and glory. The true hero. So how can we experience Jesus today? How can we as people that don't get to see the resurrected Jesus physically yet until he comes back get to experience him today? This is what Jesus wanted them to know. And number one, it's opening the scriptures and seeing Christ. It's not laying a Bible on your head at, at night and just like having it sit there. It's not opening the Bible and not seeing Jesus. It's doing the hard work of opening your Bible, reading it, studying it prayerfully and seeing Christ. And that's something that you need to do on your own and, it's, and it is a great adventure to start going on. But interestingly, it happens in community. So we see these, these two people, they're starting to talk to each other. Like, Did you feel it too? Did you feel your heart burning? And again, they didn't know it was Jesus leading this Bible study. So Jesus is, is, is this person who's a model for the rest of us of what we need to be for one another, just opening up the scriptures and pointing out and interpreting there's hope right there. I know the story of, of David, how he totally messed up his life and so many people's lives around them when he committed adultery and then he murdered the man who's, who he committed adultery with his wife. Like that, that sin and that shame and that guilt, don't you see how Jesus is, is the better David? David was the greatest leader that Israel had ever seen and had and he was an absolute failure and then Jesus comes along as the true and the better David. So Jesus is walking them through this. We need each other to make those connections. And then last, notice that it happened on the road. So it's opening up the Bible and seeing Jesus. It's doing it with other people, but it's doing it in the context of your real life. Whatever road and journey that you're on, whatever sadness, whatever hopelessness, whatever pain, whatever confusion, whatever questions you have on the road, on this journey, it's seeing Christ in the scriptures directly applied to those things. Intimacy and experience of Jesus comes out of that. Okay, the last couple verses. Look at what just happens to their life. They start with cold, hopeless hearts, and now their hearts 
are on fire. We are not eyewitnesses of his majesty in the same way that Peter was. But the footsteps of these Emmaus disciples that we're going to see here give us a path of walking in the power of resurrection that we can follow. Look what happens in verse 33 first. And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. So the first thing that happens when you're walking the power of resurrection is you leave home and you come home. They had gotten home, right? They packed up their bags and left Jerusalem. They get back to Emmaus. The resurrection becomes clear to them. They understand the gospel. They see Jesus. Their heart burns. And then they leave home and they come back to their new home, which is Jerusalem. Turning around because of our new hope. The biblical word for this is repent. To turn away from a life of sin and sadness and hopelessness to a new life of joy with Jesus. It's interesting that they traveled at nighttime. You wouldn't travel at nighttime back in those days. They didn't have cars and GPS. They had to walk and it was dangerous. And that is what it'll feel like when you leave home to come home. Your hope is so strong and it's so clear, the power and the, and the joy that you're headed to, but it is dangerous. And, and even this, they had to backtrack their whole journey. They had just finished their seven mile journey to, to Emmaus and now they're having to walk back through it. And I know it can be painful to do that. You've lived so much of your life there's so many decisions you've made, patterns you've set. People know you as this person. But when your heart burns with the truth and the reality of the gospel and you see that hope, you turn around and you backtrack and you walk home to your new life. It says they gathered with the 11, their new family. The only people in the world at this point that knew the power of the resurrection were these people in this room. And then it spread. The second thing that happens, verse 34, your wildest dreams will come true. Let me show you what I mean, verse 34. So they come to the 11 saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Christianity is crazy. It is wild. The things that are in the Bible are insane. There, there are supernatural things that happen here. The resurrection, the 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 early church leaders did not believe it when they heard about it. In Rob's text last week, they said, this, this is an idle tale. This is insane. This is crazy. But now they've seen Jesus in the scriptures. They come back and they say, the Lord is risen. What a wild idea that is. Not only did a man rise from the dead, but this man was God. And he has risen indeed. This is true. And he has appeared to Simon. The biblical word for this is believe. So if repenting is turning and coming home, believing is, listen, that your wildest dreams are going to come true because of what Jesus has done in the gospel. The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. I remember when, uh, before they made all the new ones, I remember when the last Star Wars movie happened. I was in high school, and I remember, I don't think I actually cried like in the movie theater, but I just felt so weird. I just felt like this overwhelming emotion of like, it's over. Like the great, one of the greatest stories ever told is over. And it was, it was a uh, episode, uh, you know, it's all out of order with how they work, but it was the one where they're new and then Anakin turns evil and he's going to become Darth Vader. And now we know, and it's just, and it's just like over. And so now they're making money and making all the new ones. But I remember when that ended, I was sitting there with my cousin in Northern Michigan and it, and it ended, and I just felt like this, like, if you ever felt this in a movie, I wish that my life was more like that somehow. 
Maybe you saw the new Avengers movie that just came out. Pick any just kind of science fiction, like picture, not, not like realistic look at life, but like a dream, more dreamy type of movie or book. Like there's something in us that gets pulled towards that. And we just wish that life somehow was a little bit more like that. Guys, the resurrection of Jesus was the first proof that life is very different than we think. And that our hopes and longings, some of the crazy stuff you read about in the Bible, will ultimately come true. Now, it's a little bit like what we just went through with the weather, where sun comes out and shines, and we're like, yes, spring, summer, like life isn't winter and dark and gray and cold anymore. And then a week later, it snows again. That is the Christian life in a, in a nutshell. We experience the glory and the reality and the truth, and we know it's true, but then, you know, reality sets back in and, and it's snow. Jesus rose from the grave and died. His, his disciples saw it. Their lives changed. They were eventually killed and martyred. The Christian life is full of suffering and, and struggle, but what the resurrection of Jesus shows us is that real fulfillment Real joy is possible in this life. And for the Christian that believes in it, your eternity starts now. And all those longings will be fulfilled one day. As surely as Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise with him. Your wildest dreams will come true. And then the last one, verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You tell the world. So you leave home to come home. Your wildest dreams come true. And then you tell the world what happened to you. Christianity exploded because the eyewitnesses could not deny what they had seen and heard. And the world could not deny their changed lives. Notice just the humble boldness in what they did. They don't go tell people about what they had accomplished. They tell what had happened to them. But they don't do it sheepishly. They do it confidently. There's this amazing blend of humility and boldness. Humility, this is what God did to me. I don't even know. I was hopeless. I was going home. I was on the road going back home. I was, I was about to just settle in and live life in the sadness that I thought was reality. And then God came and got me. Jesus did this crazy trick where he pretended like he was somebody else. And then he came in. He opened up the scriptures. My heart burned and everything changed boldness the lord is risen indeed what might happen in your family on our campus in our city if we shared what god has done for us with that type of humble boldness there is no arrogance in Christianity. There is no superiority because what the gospel is, it's something that has happened to us. Who do you need to tell that message to? The power of the resurrection is, is available for all of us because Jesus historically rose from the dead, but our experience of that reality is directly tied to seeing him in all of scripture. I pray for more and more of just that burning heart that we see them happening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us to be a church. God, a church that believes these things. 
that are hard to imagine except for the fact that we cannot deny the historical reality of these truths and the personal reality of our burning hearts. God, because we've opened our Bibles, we've seen you there. God, we've seen lives change right before our eyes. We've seen our own lives changed. God, fill us with confidence. Fill us with humility to be your witnesses. God, and to walk with you all the days of our life with intimacy and joy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.